Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Pulled from the hottest topics coming across our news desk, I'm Victoria Jones, and this is Housing Wire Daily. Today's housing news crossover episode features an interview with MBS Highway founder and CEO Barry Habib. In this episode, Habib joins Housing Wire Editor-in-Chief Sarah Wheeler to discuss how IMBs are dealing with increased competition and the role of companies like Rocket Mortgage and United Wholesale Mortgage in squeezing margins. But before we listen, here's a brief word from our sponsor. At Atlantic Bay Mortgage Group, we know your vision of success is unique to you. That's why your goals and our culture of support go hand in hand. We give you the tools and support you need to thrive and live your best life. Come home to Atlantic Bay. Visit JoinAtlanticBay.com to explore what's possible. Atlantic Bay Mortgage Group, NMLS number 72043, is an equal opportunity employer. Welcome, everyone. This is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at Housing Wire, with the latest episode of our Housing News Podcast. I'm really excited to welcome back our guest today, Barry Habib. Barry is very familiar to our audience, and now I think we can say he's a repeat guest here at Housing News. You know, Barry's bio spans a number of industries. He's the founder and CEO of MBS Highway, with a deep background as a mortgage banking operator, strategist, and advisor. But he's also an Amazon number one bestselling author for his book, Money in the Streets. Um, He is a three-time Crystal Ball Award winner for 2017, 2019, and then 2020 by Zillow and Pulsonomics for the most accurate real estate forecast out of 150 of the top economists in the U.S. So that's huge. Barry is the 2019 finalist for the prestigious Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year, and he's named to the esteemed Mortgage Global 100 list for 2021 by Mortgage Professional. Uh, you've also won the St. Armand Ventures Businessman of the Year Award for 2021. So Barry, we could go on and on. You're also the lead producer and managing partner of Broadway musical Rock of Ages and so much more. So thank you for being here. So nice to be back with you, Sarah. It's always a pleasure. I think you guys do such a great job. Well, thank you. You know, um, last time you were here was in January um, to kick off the year. It's only been five months, but I feel like there is a ton to talk about. So we're just going to we're going to dive in. Um, When we talked in January, you mentioned the squeeze that IMBs were likely to feel this year because of some of the bigger players who can who can really drop pricing and and squeeze those margins. Um, We've certainly seen that. We've seen the two biggest lenders do just that uh, Rocket and UWM. So how are the IMBs competing against that? So that's, it's a bit of a challenge, but IMBs always do very, very well. And margins are compressing a little bit, but from, from higher levels. So there was room to give. So that's the good thing. You know, people hear things like margin compression, margin expansion. And it's really quite simple. It's, it's just an issue of supply and demand. It's capacity that you have. When you don't have a lot of capacity, uh, then margins expand because the, the pipeline is, is, is difficult to take on more transactions, so it gives you that pricing power. But when things do slow down a little bit, and we are seeing we are seeing things slow down, refinances are down a little bit, uh, not crazy, but they are. And purchases are still good, but the purchases are getting a little bit more difficult in nature, just because now twenty five percent of the market is cash buyers. That's a lot. Just a year ago, that was seventeen percent. 
and purchase applications on a year-over-year basis. And sometimes it gets a little fuzzy to try and get that exact because we had the shutdown and we had a big resurgence. But if you figure they're down between six and ten percent from last year, um, it, it's it's a and that's accounting for the fact that some of the uh, differentials cash buyers. So purchase applications are actually a little bit higher compared to last year, but when you take into consideration that a lot of that went into the uh, into the cash buyer pool, uh, purchases are doing well, but they're they're down a little bit, um, and that causes a little bit extra capacity. Allows uh, makes those lenders in IMBs try and fill that pipeline a little bit more by dropping margins a little bit. You know, so let's talk about purchase a little bit. You know, as purchase loans pick up, the referral relationships become so important. And lenders added so many new team members over the last year who might only have experience with refis. So what does it look like now to shore up relationships with real estate agents, attorneys, financial planners, and, and others? Purchase business is going to be always an important aspect because purchase over the next few years is anticipated to remain strong. And we could go through a period of time which refinances still good. But there are going to be more rate sensitive. You know, one of the things that drives rates is inflation. We know that inflation has risen, may continue to rise. But if it does remain persistent, there's you know such a period of time that interest rates can withstand higher inflation. There's another really big thing that people should know about, and I can't believe we're already talking about August. But between August 26th and August 28th, there's an important meeting in Wyoming, in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And that's been the stage in history where the Fed has oftentimes made major announcements. There's the possibility, well, as we get closer and we see what the data is, we'll be able to zero in on it more. But I've got that circled on my calendar because that could be the day that the Fed does announce the beginning of a taper of the purchases. So they're purchasing a lot of mortgage-backed securities, and that's helping to keep rates amazingly low. Should they begin to slow down those purchases? that could add some upside pressure to interest rates. So this is why we know how sensitive refinances are. People on the refinance side need to be thinking about things like debt consolidation as a tool, because that will help you weather those storms in case interest rates start to move up. Doesn't take that much of a move up in interest rates to slow refinances down significantly. But your question's more geared towards purchases. And purchases have their own challenge as well. As I mentioned, 25% of the purchase market are cash buyers. Well, that cuts mortgage people out of it, doesn't it? So it's, uh, and when you, again, you compare it to last year where it was 17%, that means 8% of the mortgage market on purchases is vanished without a structural change to what's happening between buyers and sellers, just the nature of who's buying homes. Now you add to that the fact that some of these larger players uh, are coming into fold where you know independent mortgage bankers and your tr- traditional loan originators can have some have some loss of transactions to more call center approaches, you know, that that will feel that they'll feel the pinch from that as well. So what do you do? I've always believed that you can achieve exponential growth by alleviating points of friction. It's you know what I've done in my entire life is to try and look at ways to alleviate points of friction. And the result has always been a period of exponential growth. And so what are the points of friction right now? Well, the points of friction are that people feel that there's fear to purchase a home because there's a housing bubble. Realtors need that help to show them why, at least for the present time and for the next year or two, it doesn't appear that way. Too much demand, not enough supply, forbearance, not an issue, Forbil- affordability, as we've discussed in the past, is very strong. There are so many different things that um, 
that those who have taken the time to gain expertise can help that realtor alleviate that point of friction and then gain favor with them. Then you have discouraged buyers. Discouraged buyers happen almost every day because somebody looks for a home this weekend, next weekend, the weekend after, and they don't, they're unable to consummate a transaction because it's difficult. Let's face it, it's hard out there, right? Homes go quickly. You have to go over asking price. There's not a lot of inventory to begin with. So buyers can easily get discouraged and then they might say, well, maybe I'll come back in six months from now. But what we have to be able to do is as an expert, as an advisor, is demonstrate to them why waiting six months would make the situation even worse. Because during that period, there is a chance that interest rates would go up, especially if the Fed begins to taper. There is going to be a very high probability that we'll see continued appreciation. So that means you'll be paying more for your home with a higher interest rate. So while it is hard work, and while it means you might have to increase your offer more than what you would want to do, there's probably a wise decision from, you know, we have to look at it individually to stay with it and to not get discouraged. And then there's the, you know, big issue that's going on now with over 50% of transactions having multiple bids above asking price. This is a huge problem because even if you have the desire to want to go over asking price, your loan to value can be can, can be affected due to the fact that the lender will either go to purchase price or appraised value, whichever is lower. And if you bid too far above asking price, the appraisal may come in short. And that means you might either have to come up with a higher loan to value, potentially putting you in an MI situation, adding to cost, or you might have to come up with additional cash because maybe you could go to a 90 or a 95, but that might not be enough. So you might have to come up with additional cash just to get to a 90, 95 to make up the difference between purchase price and appraised value. So we have to get creative. And one of the things that you know, we've been trying to show people what they can do is you can, to some extent, create some money out of almost out of thin air just by being wise and being creative. So since this is a point of friction, how about if you said to your real estate agent, well, you know, I know everyone's looking for the lowest rate. But instead of taking that 3% rate with zero points, what if we took three and three eighths? Why would I take a higher rate? Because at three and three eighths, I can get you a lender credit on this $400,000 mortgage of maybe five or $6,000. That's five or $6,000 less that you have to take out of your pocket for closing costs and more that you could put towards the purchase of the home, which will, in some cases, allow you to win the home. And now, of course, your payment goes up a little bit because the rate's higher, but that's an area perhaps that the customer is willing to do and is able to do and qualifies for, as opposed to, I just don't have that five or $6,000 in order to do this. I'm not saying that this works 100% of the time. Of course, it does not. But what if it works in 30% of the cases? Well, that means that you'll be getting 30% more transactions and making 30% of those realtors a lot happier. And just introducing the concept and being creative and being smarter than your competitors, this is what your referral sources need. So I know it's a long answer, but you asked me like, how do we deal with purchases? How do we get more referral sources? Alleviation of points of friction almost always invariably leads to a period of exponential growth. And, and that's what we're looking for. You know, linear growth is what most people do. And linear is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. You know, if I took 30 steps in linear, 30 steps gets me across my office. But if I take 30 exponential steps, that gets me around the world 10 times. So if we can think, how do we begin to grow our business exponentially? 
we put ourselves in the position of experiencing these periods that, that bring us to levels that we never even imagined. And it really ensures and protects us during more turbulent times. Yeah, I really like that example because I feel like it's it's really taking the role and being a trusted advisor to the consumer at this time. <clears throat> we know that consumers are very frustrated. They are losing out. And, you know, at, at the same time, you and I know that, uh, I, I mean, your, your work, other economics work, it, things are just going to go up. If you wait six months, you've actually done yourself no favors. Well, well Sarah, I just want to clarify that. So we, we, you know, I, thank goodness we've made some good predictions in the real estate market for many years. Um, I am, I'm confident in the next year, in the next two years that prices will go up. Beyond that, it starts to get a little bit cloudier. We're currently experiencing year over year appreciation of 13%. Our forecast at the beginning of the year, we ended last year saying, you know, we're looking at, at 2021. And while most people were thinking that the housing market would be flat, some people saying down, some people, we were, we were one of the more optimistic ones saying, you know, in that six to 7% range. And then later on in January, we revised that to our, our official entry for this year was eight and a half percent. It's, we might come in short on that. It might be greater than that, because if we look back over the past 12 months, the rate of appreciation has been 13%. Now, who knows where we finish this year off, but it more than likely will be greater than even our estimate of 8.5%. Uh, that is a lot of appreciation. And you begin to pull forward appreciation to today. You, you, you start to steal from the future. Uh, we're combating that right now in a couple of different ways. We're still affordable. Rates are still good. But if rates do start to rise, that's going to create a little bit of hesitancy. Um, I don't think that there's a bubble right now. But I think that if people are unwise in their purchase, they can create their own individual bubble. If a home is worth 400000 and the sellers got it up there for four thirty or 440 not uncommon today. And you bid 480 or 470 or whatever it is, also unfortunately not extremely uncommon today. You're paying $70,000 more, you're paying almost 20% more for that home. And it might take years before that home reaches that level. And then if you hit a soft patch in between now and then, it could take even you know a, a considerable period of time that you'll be in your own housing bubble. Now, there are circumstances where the home's value might reach the level that you're overpaying in three months and six months. And that's more than likely pretty tolerable. It's a couple of months till you close anyway. So those are likely much better decisions, good decisions. We created the tool, the only tool that's out there that allows you to do that evaluation of you know, when, if, if I, when will the home achieve a level of value to where I'm paying for it. So I know how long I have to wait before I'm out of being upside down and into positive territory. And this will allow you to evaluate it. But it means that there are certain homes that maybe are worth chasing up to a certain degree. And there's certain times where you need to be able to have restraint and patience and take the emotion out of it. And I know purchasing, look, all decisions are emotional. We're fooling ourselves if we think we're not. Every decision we make is emotional and then we try and rationalize it to ourselves. Okay, But we're human. Human beings make emotional decisions. So this is where having a tool that allows you to see it and make the evaluation might allow you to put the brakes on and say, well, wait, I got to wait six years before the home is going to be worth what I'm paying for it. 
as bad as I want it, let me know what I'm getting into before I get into it. So, so Sarah, these are, these are really important times for us to look at this marketplace, which is hot, hot, hot. But we don't want to put ourselves in a position where we create our own housing bubble on our own home because the market itself is not in a housing bubble. Now, Sarah, there's a lot that we, that, that we talked about here. Could we start to see interest rates rise? You know, if the Fed starts to taper, it's quite possible. Could even over the summer months, could rates rise a little bit based upon higher inflation? We're seeing you know, three and a half percent core rate of inflation. Uh, how can you have a mortgage rate that's below the core rate of inflation? That you, you typically don't see that unless it's believed to truly be transitory, and the rate of inflation is going to come down. Now, I think it will. We take a look at the last CPI report. It was up significantly, up nine tenths of a percent in just one month. That's like mind-boggling. Wow. But when you break it down and you see that much of it had to do with the reopening, in other words, ticket prices to sporting events were up 10%. Airlines up 10.2%. You had um, you had hotels up 9%. And then you have what's going on with semiconductors causing autos and computer prices to rise 5% computers, I'm sorry, 10% on autos and 5% on computers. That is what most of the gain in, in, in inflation is. So we break that down further. What does that represent in the economy? It's 7% of the economy. N- not insignificant, but it's a segment. The remaining 93% only rose 0.3%. So if this is indeed transitory, then yeah, rates will stay good. But what if it starts to spread? What if it starts to stick? What if wage pressure inflation starts to come to be? So there are components of this that might push interest rates a little bit higher, and that could be a, a bit of a problem. Now, I do think that there's also the possibility we see a recession maybe in 2022, 23. Remember, 80% of the time when the Fed starts tightening cycle, it leads to a recession. You know, we called the last recession, we got it right, you know, we were, we were out there and we put our necks out on the line and said, you know, there's going to be a recession at the beginning of 2020. And sure enough, we got it in January. That, by the way, is two months before all the lockdowns that occurred. So yeah, we hit a recession based upon true facts of the economy, not because of the lockdown. Certainly that exacerbated it, but we were headed there anyway. When you look at the key indicators like we do, like the cash freight index and so many others that, you know, th- that led us to believe that there was a recession in, in the offing. Uh, most people don't realize that you know, when the unemployment rate reaches its lowest point, that's when you're headed for a recession, not when it's high. I know it's counterintuitive, but I think that we're set up for a recession in 2022, 2023, which means we will see much lower rates and perhaps at that point in time, another resurgence in real estate prices. Really interesting to think about um, a recession, what that does to rates, and then what that does to prices. Because you know we've been talking about the fact that the only thing right now that can seemingly cool prices is either more inventory, which doesn't, you know, it's not going to materially get better. It, it'll get some better this year, but there's not like a huge bunch of inventory coming. Um, or, or um, you know, rates going up a little bit. So let's talk about inventory. By, by the, and by the way, Sarah, you bring up such a good point because inventory is really at the crux of this issue. So you have two things. It's the, you know, the, the famous chart that I've been showing for 16 years, which shows births from 33 years ago. And what we know is that over the next three years, we're going to get more first-time home buyers coming in because when you look at the birth rates from 33 years ago, there was actually a huge upturn in, in 1988, 89, 90, 91, there was a huge upturn in births, just, just a real big spike. That's probably going to result in more demand. Now, inventory, people say, well, when, when, if you can have somebody sell their home, the only problem is that person selling their home will more than likely purchase a home. So it's good. It creates activity, but it doesn't create 
an addition of inventory. It, it, it says, okay, now I have more choices to buy a home, but that person now becomes a competitor because they need to buy a home because they need someplace to live. So they become on the market as a buyer. So it's net neutral. Really, a lot of the inventory is going to come from, from builders that are going to be building homes. And the reason why we're not seeing a lot of that is the costs to construct are have gone up quite a bit. You know, just the lumber increase alone, according to the National Association of Home Builders, adds $36,000. So it makes, it makes us have a more difficult time producing homes where they're needed most, and that is in the lower end. Clearly, the lower the price, the lower the margin. And if you're a builder, you can't blame them. There is also extremely good demand on the higher end side. So as a business person, as a fiduciary to your stockholders, you want to try and maximize profitability. I'll have a lot more profit with a margin on a home that, if I'm going to sell either one just as quick, I might as well sell a $600,000 home as opposed to a $200,000 home because I'll make a lot more money on the $600,000 home. It's a lot more margin than that. So you can't fault them. A government program that would say, hey, let's give an incentive, a, rather than put this thing in people's hands, which sounds good, sounds good, like, you know, if you're this or that, or in this first-time home bar, it sounds great. But the problem is we don't, we don't need more first-time home buyers. We've got too many of them already. And if you give them more incentive, all you're going to do is drive the price up parabolically. So if I'm getting a $20,000 or $15,000 incentive, I might pay $25,000 more for the home. So I've actually lost $10,000 on that transaction. And then probably I'll push it so parabolic that there will be a void when, they, when this benefit is over, just like we saw in April of 2010. We already know this. We've seen this movie before. So rather than do that, let's address the actual problem. Incent builders to build homes on the lower end. That will make things easier and more affordable for everybody. And what that would do is say maybe to the builders, hey, look, if you can get into a zip code and go 80% or less than the median home price, we'll give you this incentive to do that in the form of a grant, a tax break, whatever it is. Maybe, just maybe that might address the problem. So sorry about that to jump in, sorry, but you just brought up something so important right now. No, I agree. And, and we've been talking about that inventory and the fact that there are now at least three bills in Congress for first-time home buyers to incent them. Um, but we don't, you know, where, where is the incentive to, to build more? Um, I know some people thought that um, the foreclosure, that we were, we were going to have a foreclosure crisis after the forbearance ends, but we're down to, to about 2 million, lots of people exiting. I mean, what, what's, your, what's your vision on the, on the forbearance when that ends? So people just don't understand forbearance. So there's a lot of things that happen. So when forbearance is over, it's not like you say, okay, due in 30 days is the payments that you missed. You, you don't have to pay it. There's no interest on it. Eventually it gets repaid. But when? When you either sell your home or you pay off your mortgage, typically buy a refinance. So those will be staggered. They'll be gentle. But more importantly, the average loan to value on a home today is get this. This is, I know it's going to be hard to fathom, but the average LTV on a home today is 32. It means there's 68% equity. That 68% equity suggests that in the vast majority of cases that had forbearance, they will be relatively easy to weather the storm. Now, what was forbearance? It was a pause button on your payments. So now we re- now you hit play. Okay. So you got to start making your payments again. Well, there were many people that gamed the system that didn't really need forbearance. They should be fine. The vast majority of people have come back to their jobs. So since they don't have that bill of past amount due, they should be able to go back to maintaining the payments they had qualified for previously. So that shouldn't be a problem. Now, there will be a segment, albeit small, because we know factually that loss of jobs from COVID affected renters as opposed to homeowners by four to one. So there will be a very small percentage, unfortunately, you know, you certainly feel for these people that will have a difficult time making the payments. But here's the silver lining. There's a 
high probability that they will have equity in their home that they'll be incented to protect. So should they put their home on the market, it will more than likely sell quickly. They'll preserve their equity. And that added inventory on the marketplace, it's not going to distort things because it will appear as if the analogy to me is like you know, taking a, a water can and sprinkling it in the desert. You know, it's, it's not, we need this inventory. It's not like it's going to flood us with inventory from the small amount of transactions that unfortunately for the wrong reasons would come to market. Well, I also think it's it's completely different from last time in many ways, but in one way, it's it's not concentrated in a neighborhood. I mean, it's not like, oh, this neighborhood, all these people took forbearance, just like, you know, last time you had the subprime lending. I mean, it's totally different. So sprinkling in the garden is a perfect analogy because it, it's all over. So it's not going to bring housing prices down. So it doesn't have that cumulative effect of even if they had to sell their house, it's not going to sit vacant and empty. It's not going to be a bunch of blighted properties. By the way, you bring up vacancies. Vacancies are an all-time low, which was another incentive for price concessions because I've just got carrying costs. So because you have an all-time low in vacancies, sellers typically don't have an incentive to reduce prices in a significant way. So you've got everything working in favor of supporting prices, but the biggest one is supply and demand. And Sarah, here's another thing that most people don't think about is they say, well, you know, I hear this a lot. What comes up must come down. That really isn't true because there are several things that have gone up and Maybe they come down a little or they correct, but doesn't mean they come down to their original levels. If you look at California as an example, they have had persistently high home prices, yet they go up. Why? California has compensated for it in a way that many people or many places around the country might. Is the national rate of home ownership in the US is 66%. So California has compensated for those persistently high prices by shaving off some of that home ownership rate. Some people won't qualify for that. The home ownership rate in California now varies, of course, by different markets, but by and large, around 55%. But here's the key. 55% of that pie still overwhelms the availability of supply. So if you just kind of narrow it down and make things simple, and we know the basic law of economics is price discovery is determined based upon supply and demand. So if you have too much demand that overwhelms supply, there's a really good chance the prices are going to go up. And that's what we're seeing. So we, we know that demand will be increasing. We know that supply is challenging to bring to the market for builders right now. So we see that you know, unless affordability becomes an issue or a problem, that home prices will probably be in a position to have an upward bias. Now, affordability right now, I mentioned, is, is strong. And we have to look at a couple of things there because this is the most confusing topic of all where everybody in the media is talking, you know, Diana Olick is famous for this and Adam Data is also famous for this. And there are many others that are famous for talking about affordability. So here's an example that I think really kind of crystallizes it. You see, when, when we look at the media, first of all, they get it wrong. They look at median home price and currently the median home price has gone up year over year 19%. So I say, look at that and then look at hourly earnings. Hourly earnings are only up 4%. It's unaffordable. It's unsustainable. Well, let's clarify. Median home price is not appreciation. If we remember from math class, it means that half of the transactions above it, half below it, there are fewer pieces of inventory to purchase on the lower end. So that's what's moving that needle. Now, actual appreciation, real appreciation is still very robust at 13%, but it's not 19, it's 13. Now compare that to hourly earnings, and it does look a bit like it's too far out of reach except you shouldn't look for hourly earnings because people work different shifts, people work different amounts of hours. A more accurate view would be to look at weekly earnings. That's more indicative of what I might take as my, my real money that I'm making. 
Now that's up 7.2% if you take the last few months to try and smooth things out. But 7.2% annual, let's call it 7% of weekly earnings. It's still different than the 13%. So somebody might say, okay, Barry, but uh, those numbers, yeah, you're right, but still unaffordable, right? Here's the example I like to look at because now it requires a little bit of math and math is hard for the media. So what we look at is if you were to purchase a home last year and the principal and interest, only principal and interest payment were a thousand bucks last year, if you would have purchased that home, your income would have needed to be around $5,000 a month. So $1,000 a month purchase, $5,000 a month income. Now, let's say that that home comes back on the market this year. You didn't buy it last year because you listened to the media, you got scared, and now you have another chance to do it. Well, that home value has gone up 13%. Since interest rates have stayed reasonably close, let's just say they're the same. That means the payment would go up 13%. So your last year was 1,000, you didn't buy it. You wanna buy it this year? Now it's up 13% or $1,130, which is an increase of 130 bucks a month. Hey, that's less affordable, right? It's less affordable unless your income went up and your income did go up. So for your income to have gone up $130 a month, if you're making 5,000, how much did it have to go up? Only 2.6%. So the point here is that they don't have to be the same. If interest rates stay the same, a 2.6% rise in your income will cover a 13% rise in purchase price. And that's where the math comes in that the media has a tough time understanding. So all these are points of friction. You start alleviating these and you put yourself in a position to really become of great value to your customers and your referral sources. I appreciate that. Um, even though we are part of the media, um, you know, we always try to get it right. So I'm not saying it's hard for you guys. You guys are great. You guys are what's good about the media. I'm talking about you know, the Diana Olix of the world and the media whose bias is a negative one because they understand the effect of the amygdala. And the amygdala is within your brain and it's the reaction to fear, which kind of slows time down because as human beings, we want pattern recognition because if we see something bad happened as a result of doing this, we then say, oh, let's really remember and embed this in our memory so we don't have this bad thing happen to us. The me Trust me, as someone who has their own show on CBC for many years, and we've been on for, for over 30 years on TV. I understand what they're thinking. Right. So that's why when you watch your 11 o'clock news, it's not, oh man, things are really great out there. It's always with a negative bias because they know if they scare you, they'll capture your attention for a longer period of time and they can charge more for advertising. You guys do a great job. You guys are presenting the facts, you're presenting the story, but the major networks, what they typically do with any news item is have a negative bias. Oh, absolutely. And no, we, we see it too, especially with housing, where maybe they, that's not their specialty. And so so they get in a little bit over their heads. Well, let's talk about, you know, we were talking about information and where people get it. I feel like originators have a ton of information at their fingertips now. You know, they can look at different data sets. Uh, but sometimes I think that might be overwhelming. Like from your perspective, what are some of the most important things that people should be paying attention to? What are the data sets that matter? What are what are the points of information that really should be guiding people in their business and as they're talking to consumers? Okay, so we, we created Certified Mortgage Advisor, of course, so people would really have a good understanding of this to really be an advisor, not just say you're an advisor, but be an advisor, to really understand the, the economic trends, understand technical analysis, the Fed, how lenders are manipulating APR understand all the economic reports, how the bond market works, where mortgage money comes from. You would think you'd learn this in the beginning, but people don't. That gives you an advantage. So what should you watch, especially when you know this? Well, interest rates are based upon or driven by inflation. Because if the reason why inflation drives interest rates is because if, if you were to give me a mortgage, Sarah, and I'm paying you $2,000 a month every single month, 
you could take that $2,000 a month for the next 30 years and buy a shopping list of goods and services. But over time, Sarah, you notice that after a few months or a few years, the money that I'm giving you, the $2,000 a month, will not buy everything on that shopping list because inflation drives prices a little bit higher. You can live with that if the rate of inflation is 1% or 2% and you're getting 3.5%, you know you're making a spread there. But if inflation starts to rise, you can't do anything about the loan that you've given me and because I'm a fixed rate, I'm done. But you're going to begin to say, hey, if this inflation is here to stay, then on the future loans that I issue, I have to make sure that I'm starting at a higher perch to offset that more rapid rate of erosion. Therefore, I have to charge a higher interest rate. Most people don't understand the simple concept of what drives interest rate. They just think, oh, one day it's this. No. And that's why when you said, okay, what should you be looking at? You look at the economic reports with an eye towards what is going to cause inflationary pressure, because that is what the interest rate environment is going to look for. Now, today, the game is a little bit rigged because the Fed is buying so much. It's not a true market that is based upon natural reaction to the, those news items. So it's a bit muted. Uh, we, we've got training wheels on. But under normal circumstances, inflation would be your driver. Now, what drives inflation? Economic activity. The definition of inflation is too many dollars chasing too few products. And the hotter the, econ the economy and economic activity, the more persistent inflation will be. And as, as the economy softens, less pricing pressure. Now, one important thing that people don't understand is the impact and the effect of debt on interest rates. And you see, if we know that interest rates are governed by inflation, inflation is governed by economic activity, debt will be a drag on economic activity. And the reason for that, Sarah, is because I'll give you an analogy. If a family wanted to make a purchase of a vehicle, a nice car. Now, remember when we were kids, we'd save up, put money in a piggy bank, and then we'd, we'd buy. But as adults, heck, who wants to wait? We want, we want to feel good now. We want that instant gratification. I want it. I want it now. So we take a purchase that would have occurred in the future and bring it forward by using debt. We buy it on credit. We buy it with a loan. So when we do that, we instantly create economic activity. The manufacturer, the dealer, the salesperson, they all make money. Everybody's making money based on that transaction. We created a lot of economic activity. But after that wears off, what's left behind? The debt. Because now that family who purchased the car has $1,000 a month less for the next five years to generate economic activity. And it's not different for a government. If you just think about what happened in 2020, you had CARES Act 1 and 2 in March and April, it was 2.3, then $500 billion. I mean, we talk about $2.8 trillion combined, 2.3 trillion and 500 billion. These are very big numbers. And we had a lot of economic activity, but by the fourth quarter, it already wore off. Then we had 900 billion in December of 2020, followed by 1.9 trillion, another 2.8 trillion in March of 2021. It is my feeling that all this economic push you're seeing now will subside towards the fourth quarter, which is why the administration is already thinking as you get into a congressional election year, we got to do this program. We got to do that program. They did the child program. They're trying to do the infrastructure because you've got to keep the steroids flowing. You got to keep it going. And we don't know how that's going to impact us, but the debt from it, we have proof of this. You can see it in every country in the world, every period of time in the world, as debt rises, rates go down because after the initial flurry, once it wears off, you see slower economic activity because of the debt, which pressures inflation lower, and then you have lower rates. Plus, don't, think, don't forget about all the technological deflationary pressures at hand. 
look, innovation solves problems. You think Amazon is not going to do more robotics and they're not going to do more AI, as will everybody. Innovation solves problems. Technology is an enormous pressure on deflation. Remember Moore's law that you know this technology will will double every two years. So it is my feeling that we will be in a low interest rate environment for a long time. And I do think that there's a chance to see low rates, perhaps as low as we were. I don't know if they'd be lower. And we got it right when we said the low on the 10-year treasury would be a half. It was exactly right. I mean, I remember saying it on Fox and people sent me mail saying, what are you freaking nuts? Half a percent, how's that ever going to happen? And you know, we, we got to exactly was the closing low on the 10-year treasury. I think that there is a chance uh, to certainly challenge 1%, maybe get below 1% again in 2022-23. Wow, super interesting. And thanks for, for saying it on here. We're, we're interested to hear that for sure. And we're coming to the, the end of our time. So I wanted to ask you uh, one more thing. You know, last year, so many lenders ramped up staff, but with margins falling and being compressed with, with different things happening, are we seeing the first signs of, of cutting that we know has to be coming? You know, it's really unfortunate because these are good people and these are their, their you know, their livelihood. But um, it even becomes an exacerbated problem because as you know, what has transpired during that crush, uh, people were paying a lot of money because you can't just make an underwriter to, you know, in a day. Okay. You know, oh, let me give you a week's worth of training. So, you know, you can be an underwriter uh, or even or a processor. Certainly this is, you, these are skilled positions. So oftentimes the only way that you can add to your staff to accommodate volume, and it seemed like it was well worth it, is to overpay to steal somebody from one place to another. So as the bidding process got higher and higher, these positions are very costly. So looking at it now, if we get a persistent level of contraction and margin compression, um, there certainly is going to be very unfortunate to see some of these positions be let go. And, and, and that's going to be hard. It's, it's going to be a di difficult task and difficult things for people to uh, to consider. So, you know, and especially given the sensitive nature to interest rates that we will see, um, should we start to see a taper? Should we start to see interest rates rise? Uh, I'm not sure that's going to happen uh, because I think what could happen is as we get to Jackson Hole, the Fed may be really prepared to want to start to taper. But if we see the effects of the stimulus start to wane and we start to see economic activity, the Fed will be very, very, very fearful of wanting to to pull the pull the trigger on this too early. So they may kick the can down the road, and that could keep the refi machine going. By the way, the best thing you could be doing is looking at debt consolidation because that makes you far less sensitive to rate increases and far more valuable to your customers. So you could positively change their lives by doing so. Uh, and here's the thing about debt consolidation: is that you're really taking what the defense has given you. So, what has the market given you here? The point of friction that's been alleviated is people have equity in their homes, so you can use that equity. Look, let's remember this, that, that in, in the past year or so, we've experienced exponential growth because of exactly what we said, a point of friction being alleviated. What was it? Well, the barrier that the rate's too high. So the problem with that, Sarah, is that the market did that. We didn't do that. And if you want to be really successful into the future, you have to alleviate points of friction and you'll constantly see exponential growth. Well, Barry, thank you so much. There's so much there. I'm going to uh, re-listen to it myself and uh, 
really interesting to hear what you're looking for going forward. And we will definitely check back with you after that Jackson Hole meeting and, and kind of see, you know, where, where are we going from there? It'll be really interesting for the rest of the year. But thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insights. You're awesome. Thank you. Now more than ever, the housing industry is looking to its leaders for answers. That's why each week, the Housing News Podcast invites a new mortgage, fintech, or real estate executive to the show to provide its listeners with more perspective on the announcements and news stories crossing HousingWire's news desk. Hosted by Sarah Wheeler and produced by Alcina Lloyd, the Housing News Podcast is now available on iTunes, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, and more. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily as we wrap up this week's news coverage. As always, we like to remind you to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Have a great weekend and catch everyone back here again on Monday.